In your pew Bibles, which are the blue books in front of you, unless you sit in the front row, in which case you've got to get one from the back, page 1,142, 1,142, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Paul's first letter uh, to the church that was in the very southern part of Greece. And um, it's a, boy, when you come to verse 12, wow, the logic is tight. Christ cannot be separated from his people. So if Christ isn't risen, you're not going to be risen. And if you're risen, it's because Christ is risen. And so Paul, master logician, develops that in those verses. And it it is the part of the great resurrection chapter in Holy Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 1142 in your pew Bibles. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep means to to die in Christ, which which is indeed asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I, Paul, am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep, that has died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, literally now, or in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first of a whole harvest. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But, 
each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Amen. And now our Lord, come by the Holy Spirit. You, our Lord, who are the the source you and, and also the, the goal, the purpose of all of our praise. Show us, our Lord, something of the meaning of your resurrection from the dead and how it is very much in the full sense of the meaning of that phrase, the great D-Day of human history. Amen. 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 Please be seated. And you'll want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1,142 in your pew Bibles. (coughs) History is changed by major turning points, 476 B.C., the Roman Empire falls to the barbarians, and the world would be very, very different. Lesser known to you in 732 A.D., the Battle of Tours, in which, had that battle not been successful, Europe would have been a Muslim nation instead of a nation that would be increasingly influenced by Christianity. Very familiar to us, I hope, 1776 and the beginning of the War for Independence in which certainly our nation, and in a real sense the world, would be very different from that war. 1815, the defeat of Napoleon and Napoleon's empire changing the course of Europe. June 6, 1944, known as D-Day, the largest seaborne invasion in human history that began the liberation of Europe as troops went from the coasts of England to the east to the coast of France. I want you to try to imagine the liberation of Europe from Nazism without D-Day, and you can't. Hitler's designs, had they not been stopped, beginning with D-Day, Hitler's designs were literally not only for Europe and for England, but for North America and for South America as well. Had it not been for D-Day, that could have, in large measure, been accomplished. The resurrection of Christ is so much like D-Day. In the same way you can't imagine the liberation of Europe without D-Day, 
you cannot imagine the liberation of nations from the bondage of evil without God's D-Day, Resurrection Sunday, when Christ was raised from the dead. And, and what, does that, what does that liberation mean? How did it come about? What did it mean? And what did it do? Well, that's what we're going to consider this morning under the subject of D-Day. And D-Day is as agonizing and as breathtaking Christ's own D-Day as the D-Day of June 6, 1944. And I want you to catch some of that agony and breathtakingness. So, for today, God's D-Day, Deliverance Day. It is both agonizing and it is breathtaking in an infinite degree. The text from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 through 28, it is part of the Bible's a great message about resurrection. It is known as the resurrection chapter in the Bible. And I want you to see it as a remarkable parallel to D-Day, June 6th, 1944. So let's begin, let's begin with the world before D-Day, occupation, occupation. Key words, and you see them in the text. In verse 21, for as by a man came death... And verse 22, for as in Adam all die. The occupation of Nazi Germany meant death for so, so many people. Hopelessness, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. It is empty, your life, your life is without any purpose or without any hope. Verse 17, similarly, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Basically, your faith is silly, and you're still in your sins. A sense of hopelessness when it comes to sin. Under Nazism, 1930s, 1940s, successively, a people are marked. They're marked for death. There is misery that begins to enshroud the areas that are taken over by Nazis. There is bondage. There is fear. There is darkness. Many didn't even realize those things under the bondage of Nazism. But I want you to go to the great original of all tyrannies, okay? The great original of all tyrannies began immediately upon something called the fall that you read about in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Notice the similarities. A marked people. The wages of sin is death. It's the scarlet letter D on all who are born by ordinary generation. Misery. The misery of murder the misery of war, the misery of death, the misery of sickness and sorrow, bondage, the bondage that comes to the enslaving power of sin and iniquity, fear that comes, not least the fear of death, and a darkness because the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has been put out by eyes that have been blinded by their own disobedience to God. And like with Nazism, many don't even realize it. 
and they continue to exist. Under Nazism, there was hopelessness that was fueled by propaganda. It's interesting that the German ministry for propaganda was called the Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. But it was, it was hardly a ministry of public enlightenment and propaganda. It was used to demonize and to misrepresent opponents. Well, through the Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, the Nazis were taught that they were free people, uh, that the German government under Adolf Hitler was a humanitarian government. The victories of Germany were emphasized. Uh, the Allied victories were either minimized or not mentioned at all. Adolf Hitler himself on propaganda tellingly wrote, through clever and constant application of propaganda, people can be made to see paradise as hell and also the other way around, to consider the most wretched sort of life as paradise. And further, Adolf Hitler on propaganda, if you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. That's a counterfeit, and that's, that's an aping of the great original, the fall. Because from the time of the fall, brothers and sisters were surrounded by the deception of many, many words. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And remember that the devil is the great original of which Adolf Hitler was but a copy. From the time of the fall, there has been deception by empty words and by the overt lies of the devil. There are so, so many of them. Understanding is darkened since the fall. People are kept in ignorance. They're not really given any hope for this life or the life to come. And there is no good news in a world without Jesus Christ. There may be sedatives, and we have a lot of them in our culture, but you just look horizontally and there's no solutions. I've been struck recently, especially in the past months, with how therapies are no solutions to real human problems. You can discuss them but there's no real solutions to them. Each day, as under Nazism in a fallen world, there's still captivity. In verse 17, apart from Christ, you are still, you are yet in your sins. And by nature, no hope, no hope for this life. No hope for the life to come. And in a fallen world, yes, there's an emphasis on guilt, although you can somewhat sully your conscience in various ways. But there is no getting away from bondage. Bondage to thoughts that cannot break out of a box of fallenness, emotions that have no real solution to them, a will that doesn't want to do the right thing, desires for good, for eternity, that you can't satisfy, again, just thinking horizontally. 
Elie Wiesel's classic book for which he won a, a no, the Nobel Peace Prize has to be the most arresting book about the experience of being a Jew in Nazi Germany in a concentration camp. Elie Wiesel was 15 years old when he and his family were taken captive. They were brought to one of the prison camps called Birkenau. And as he writes, when they arrive at the camp, and they've already seen bodies that have been brought to incinerators, and they've smelled the burning flesh. Uh, they've seen children who were part of that burning pyre. And he said, deep down, I was saying goodbye to my father and to the whole universe. Again, think hopelessness. My heart was about to burst. There I was, face to face with the angel of death. That's what it's like to be in a fallen world. And note this powerful, memorable expression of his own hopelessness. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in the camp, the night that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget the smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the very desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Does that somewhat describe your life? See, the world, apart from the hope that comes in Christ, is a concentration camp. And all of those things described there metaphorically, that, that, is, that is the world. And if your only hope is in yourself or this world, there is no real hope. What's Nazism? It's natural life unbridled. We go from occupation to rumors. There had been talk of an invasion of Europe for some years. There was even talk of liberation of Europe. But people were not sure of the place, and they weren't sure of the time, or even of the length of time until that liberation would come. It was only rumors, but they were circulating in France and in Denmark and in Holland and in Poland and even in Germany itself. The great resurrection chapter, beginning at verses 1 through 3, speaks not of rumors, but of promises. The gospel that was preached to you is a gospel what? It was delivered that included receiving Christ dying for our sins. Here it is, not a rumor, but a promise. In accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that Jesus was raised the third day, in accordance with 
the Scriptures. There would be one, you would read in the Old Testament, in the Promises, one who would crush the head of the serpent, one who would bring blessing to all of the nations. That one who would bring blessing to the nations would be a suffering servant, but a suffering servant who would not be left to the grave. He would be one who would be, in his interesting language in Psalm 2, he would be born from the dead. He would have, if you will, a new birth. He had been born of a virgin. He would be born from the dead as the firstborn of what we call new creation. And he would be given the nations as his inheritance, and he would rule as a liberator in the midst of his enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so as you read the Old Testament, you're not sure of the exact time. You know that generally the place is going to be in Israel, and you don't know how long it's going to take, but it's a lot more than rumors. There are promises of liberation that would come to an occupied world. And then preparation for the Allied powers for over two years. The best military minds among the Allied powers were at work, and what interesting was called Operation Roundup. There was the preparation of men, thousands of them, the preparation of equipment, the preparation of battle strategy, the big picture, and there was the preparation of the tactics so that the strategy could be carried out for two full years, the preparation of the Allied powers for D-Day. For God's D-Day, the preparation literally began in eternity with the best of minds, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in what we call technically the covenant of grace. Here is a fallen world, a world that, in which there would be a decree to permit the fall, a fall that would come about. And how is there to be hope for the world? The Father would choose a multitude of all nations that no man can number, and they would be given to the Son, to the Lord Jesus, who would do what had to be done for God to be both merciful and just. In justice, the Son would bear all of the punishment of all of those people. In an infinite degree as the God-man, he would, he would bear it. And then mercy could come to those because God does not believe in or practice double indemnity for all those for whom the Son would give himself. There would be the outpouring of mercy. And the Holy Spirit would be the one who would go into all of the world and do what he did at creation, brood, as it were, over the face of the land and the waters to form a people for God's own possession in all the world. That was the work of the best of minds, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in order to do that, there wasn't the preparation of thousands of troops. There was the preparation of a man. As you read 1 Corinthians 15 over a dozen times, you read of that man, Christ, Messiah, all the 
promises of the Old Testament, of a prophet to teach us, of a priest to die for us and pray for us, of a king to reign over us. All all of those promises are woven together. The Christos, the anointed one, all of that woven together in Jesus Christ, one man. And he would be brought up as a man who would know how to do battle with the devil as he learned the word of God. One of the most exciting exercises for God's people is to take the Psalms and realize that all of those 150 Psalms have their fulfillment in one way or another in Christ and the kingdom. He memorized them. He sang them. He lived them. He was prepared to fulfill them. In his public ministry, he was equipped for his own D-Day. He was anointed with the Spirit above measure. And he had a lot of practice skirmishes. He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and he was victorious. And he faced the powers of disease in the world, and he was victorious. He faced hungry multitudes and thirsty multitudes, and he quenched their hunger and their thirst, and he was victorious. And he even even raised from the dead. This would be different than Christ's resurrection. It would be the power of Christ to raise someone, or as Christ would be raised by his own power. But all of those were practice skirmishes, and there was never a defeat. Sadly, that wasn't the case for the Allies, because in exercise tiger 946 American soldiers were killed in an event training for D-Day. But not so with Christ. And his strategy was well known to him as D-Day approached. Midway through his ministry, he stunned his disciples when he said, I must go to Jerusalem that my exodus would be accomplished. What did he mean by that? Exodus, yes, was the deliverance from the Egypt of death but it was also the time of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. I must be crucified, he told his disciples. They didn't get it. But this was our Lord's preparation as his own D-Day approached. That brings us to a night to remember. Going back in the time machine now to June 5th, 1944. General Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied commander and gave this message to those who were going to go across the English Channel to the beaches of Normandy the next day from the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. Dr. General Dwight Eisenhower speaks soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, 
and battle-hardened, he will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. General Eisenhower preparing the troops for the invasion of Normandy just a few hours after that. What must it have been like? Operation Neptune, it was called, because Neptune was the supposed god of the seas, and they were going across the English Channel. D-Day has been called a never-surpassed masterpiece of planning. 6,939 vessels leave the beaches of England to go across the English Channel to France, carrying men and munitions across the dark, covered waters of the English Channel. There's a rival, and there is fire from the beaches toward all of the men who make that beach. And it wasn't one beach, it was six beaches. In one day, on those six beaches, 10,000 casualties. Omaha, Juneau, Sword, Utah, Gold, Point de Hoc, bloodied by the blood of well over 10,000 men killed or wounded. God's D-Day, what we call Good Friday. Now, Jesus said, is the hour and the power of darkness. It's not Operation Neptune. It is Operation Crucifixion. What must this have been like? A never-surpassed masterpiece of planning. Let me adapt General Eisenhower's address as if it were given to Christ by the Father. To my beloved Son, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven for over 4,000 years. The eyes of the hosts of heaven are upon you. The hope and prayers of God-loving people throughout the centuries march with you. Alone, you will bring about the destruction of the devil and his angels 
the elimination of the tyranny of the world over its oppressed peoples, and true security for all of your people in a kingdom free of guilt and shame. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. Not thousands of men. One man. The walk not to Normandy Beach, but to a place called Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull. And he has no support. He and man's great enemy will fight the battle alone. The unleashed power of hell will be poured out on one man. And the unleashed power of the wrath of God that should fall on us fell on him. One man, but in him all those who had been given to him from the councils of eternity and for whom he died. But what what a casualty. This, folks... This is the God-man. This is the last Adam. This is the one whose death is the death of death by a cross. Nothing, nothing is like this night and day to remember. And then D-Day itself. By the end of June 6th, 1944... All the six beaches had been taken, but it would take another two and a half months for the full occupation of that area and the beginning of the liberation of Europe, which would be less than 11 months after that. D-Day broke the back of Hitler's power, but there had to be quite a while for the mopping up operation and liberation. And so with God's D-Day, It's the very beginning of the first, we'll call it that for a moment, Easter Sunday. And as you look at the text, the Apostle Paul says this is exactly what this means in verse 20. Now, in history, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which means he's raised from the dead, but he's like the first sheaf of wheat. There'll be a whole harvest that will come in the future where all who've died in him will come forth. And that, that brothers and sisters, means it's a hallelujah, praise the Lord. And notice, notice how the, even, as, even as breaking the back of Hitler's power on June 6, 1944, had an immediate effect so there are these effects that began immediately. This is why we call it D-Day. It's a death blow day because in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died in him, fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. D-Day death blow day on that first Easter Sunday 
But it's also a deliverance day. Look at verses 22 to 24. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all that is all represented by him shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, again the firstfruits of a whole harvest. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. Deliverance Day in all of human history as the Lord saves individuals and at the very end has a climactic victory with his return, Deliverance Day. And there's Destruction Day as well. The last part of verse 24, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority, the destruction of everything that opposes him will be carried out in history and climactically carried out at his return at the last day. In fact, it's a death-eliminating day. Verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What does that mean? Well, it's a beautiful picture in the scriptures at the very end of human history when the devil is cast into his rightful place of hell. Death itself, the very concept of it, the smell of it, the pain of it, the sorrow of it, the misery of it, all that is meant by death is, as it were, put into one ugly package and it too is cast into hell. This is a death-eliminating day. And there's a displacement as well. Displacement day, verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Right now Christ has all authority in heaven and earth. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, God the Father is not subject to the Son. When all things are subjected to him then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things into subjection unto him that God may be all in all. That's displacement day, the displacement of darkness with eternal light, the displacement of death with eternal life, the displacement of hopelessness with eternal confidence, frankly, the displacement of idols with God himself. So it's a magnificent displacement day, and it really is the dawn of a new day when God will be all in all. And don't you in your heart of hearts say that's the way it should be? There's something in all human hearts that says that man, woman, boy, and girl is not meant to be the center of the universe that's been made by this wonderful God And God himself will so work through his son throughout history that eventually in every atom of new heavens and new earth, there will be a glorifying and an enjoying of God. That's that's the fulfillment of D-Day. D-Day was, interestingly enough, D-Day was called Operation Overlord. God's D-Day, Operation Overlord. Christ the Lord. So you can remember it that way. And what's your response? Well, folks, there's a new form of tyranny that is falling upon our own nation. 
whether it be the tyranny of the state, whether it be the tyranny of science, faultly so-called, whether it be the tyranny of artificial intelligence, the tyranny of technology, the tyranny of media, the tyranny of human sin. You see it being unfurled in our own land and bringing things into subjection, even as Adolf Hitler brought Poland and Holland and Denmark and France under his subjection. What's the antidote? It's given at the first part of chapter 15. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters as well, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received. And folks, do you receive the gospel? This isn't talking about going to church on Easter Sunday. This is about an Easter life where your whole life is caught up in this one who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The gospel I preach to you, which you received, and in which you stand, you're there with it as you're with your spouse, and by which you are being saved. There's that process of making us more and more like Christ, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless, unless you believed in vain. That gospel, folks, that's what brings liberty. And it brings liberty individually, in which you're, the bondage of sin and guilt and shame and death is taken away, and you live as a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, you have a role as serving him that we'll come to in a moment, but it all begins, as I hope it does with you, with your personal receiving of Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And you better, because he is Lord. And the scriptures say one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the difference. You do that now in an age of grace and you'll be saved. If you must do it at the last day when you've rejected him your whole life, you'll be damned. Whoever does not believe in the Son of God, Jesus says, is condemned already. But he came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. Here's the thing. Remember those powerful quotations about propaganda from Adolf Hitler. Brothers and sisters, Christ breached the Normandy, went to the Normandy beach of sin and tyranny, and he took it. And when you are in him by grace through faith, you continue to be on the march, taking those powers, dealing with you. Make the distinction between reigning, dominating sin, which is your life if you're outside of Christ, or remaining indwelling sin, which is your life in Christ. But in Christ, you're on the march with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I heard... Cardinal Dolan, and I know he means well with what he said, with the with the 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 the, the passion, the Via Dolorosa, the passion of the cross. And he said, "We did this because Jesus needs friends, folks. Jesus doesn't so much need friends as he needs fellow soldiers. And you trust in Christ." Rest in him, 
you're called to be part of the greatest resistance movement in all of history, to be part of that resistance movement against the power of the world and the flesh and the devil. Let me, let me once again adapt General Eisenhower's address, but make it General King Jesus' address to you. This is the year 2023. Much has happened since the triumphs of Golgotha and the empty tomb. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. He is vested with all authority in heaven and on earth, and he will reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Over the past two millennia, the preaching of the gospel has powerfully converted multitudes that no person can number. More and more of the kingdoms of this world are being supplanted by the kingdom of God. And we have overwhelming superiority in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is able to subdue the hardest of hearts and to turn the world upside down, just as he did before. The tide is turned. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in its weakness, is marching to victory in the strength of the King. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in spiritual battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. May God be with you, just as he promised to be. And let us beseech his blessing upon this great and noble undertaking. And brothers and sisters, it will succeed because Christ has risen, to which you respond by saying, Christ has risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray together. Our wonderful God, we bless you that the powers of hell had their neck broken by Christ's resurrection from the dead. That with Christ's crucifixion, a dead world was crucified to him and all those in him to that world. And when in his own body on the tree, the Lord Jesus swallowed all of the power of punishment and of wrath and of hell, we praise you, our Lord, that that now flows out into full and free forgiveness to all who run to Christ and who rest in him. We marvel, our God, that you have implanted in human history from D-Day, June 6, 1944, a glorious picture of the wonder of deliverance from oppression in Christ. Now, our Lord, may none of us leave this place today just saying, I worshipped Jesus on Easter. May rather each of us say, I put my trust in Christ. I believe in Christ. I'm in awe of the work that he has done. And, oh God, by your grace, may my life never be the same again. We ask these things to your glory, O oh heart-changing King Jesus. And we confirm that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen and Amen.